So, it is December. You should have opened eight doors on your advent calendars. Um, how's that going? Ha have you got a chocolate? Who's got a chocolate advent calendar? Only a few people. Wow, that is shocking. Um, me and Rachel don't have a chocolate advent calendar. We have a Lego advent calendar. I know, it's pretty cool, um, which my mum bought for me completely randomly. Um, but there we go. So I hope you're enjoying December and the season of Advent. We're in our Christmas series here at Christchurch Fairham, and we're focused on Matthew's Gospel. We're reading the Christmas story according to Matthew, the Gospel, gospel writer. And last week we read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and we read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Um, so as you know, and you love to mock me, I love reading long lists of Hebrew names. And last week we read Matthew chapter 1 and, and the list of all those people from whom Jesus Christ was descended. And I hope you agree, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary genealogy, an amazing genealogy. We learned that Jesus Christ was the son of Abraham. And we read that promise that was given to Abraham that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so we learn that Jesus Christ is the one through whom every nation on earth will be blessed. And we also learned that Jesus was the son of David. And, and we read the promise given to David that David would have a son who would sit on the throne of David, on the throne of Israel, forever and ever. And so we learned that Jesus is not just the one through whom every nation will be blessed, he's also the everlasting king who will reign on David's throne forever and ever and ever. So it was, it was an amazing, amazing genealogy. Jesus has an extraordinary ancestry. Well, this week we're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And we're going to see that Jesus does not just have an extraordinary ancestry, he also has an extraordinary birth. An amazing birth story we're about to read. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read 18, uh, verses 18 to 25. It will be on the screen behind me, I believe. Yes? No? Beautiful. Okay. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. My purpose as a preacher, uh, not just in this sermon, but in every single sermon that I preach, in every single sermon that is preached at this church, Christ Church Fairham, our purposes as a preacher is to proclaim the magnificence and majesty of Jesus Christ. We love Jesus Christ. We're called Christ Church Fairham because we love Jesus in this church. We love Jesus because he is God whom we worship. He is the saviour in whom we place our faith. 
Here's the central point of all history. All the Old Testament from Adam all the way to Malachi was building up to Jesus Christ and every single person should look back to Jesus Christ since that moment when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the grave. Every person after that should look back to Jesus and believe him to be the central point of history. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the everlasting king. He is our brother and our friend. We can know Jesus by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is poured out and into the hearts of everyone who believes in Christ so they can know Jesus as brother and friend. Jesus is loving and compassionate. He is a teacher with all wisdom. He is righteous and just and good in all that he does. He's blameless. He's sinless. He's perfect in everything. He's the king who made himself a servant. He's the creator. Through Christ, all things were created. But he's the creator who himself was born a man, born into the creation which he had created. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is before all things. He is after all things. He is supreme in everything. Jesus Christ is truly magnificent and majestic and glorious. And so when someone attends a service at Christ Church Fairham, my hope is that they wouldn't leave thinking, oh, the music was good. I, would, I want them to think that the music was good, but that's not ultimately what I want them to think. I, I don't want them leaving thinking, oh, that was a great sermon. Wasn't the preacher fantastic? I don't want people leaving thinking, weren't the people lovely? I wish people would think those things, but ultimately, I want people to leave this church service. I want people to, who come to Christchurch Fairham to leave thinking, I love Jesus Christ. I have faith in Jesus Christ. He is truly magnificent and majestic in every way. That's the kind of church we're trying to build here. Not not a church where people think that the service is fantastic, but a church where people realise how brilliant Jesus Christ is. He is the Lord of all the earth, and he is the saviour of all who put their trust in him. And this sermon this morning is no different. This is a sermon all about the magnificence of Jesus Christ. And when I read that passage to you, you might think this is a story about Joseph. It does say some stuff about Joseph. It does call Joseph a just man. And you might be expecting a sermon that's focused on Joseph's kind of version of the Christmas story and, 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 and a sermon all about Joseph. But really, this passage is all about who Jesus Christ is. This passage and this sermon is all about who Jesus Christ is. Is. And so I've got four points that I want to preach to you this morning from those verses that I read from Matthew chapter 1. Firstly, I want to preach to you that Jesus is the one who saves people from their sins. That's in verse 21. Then I want to preach to you of Jesus who is the fulfilment of the Old Testament in verses 22 and 23. Thirdly, I'm going to preach to you of Jesus who was born of a virgin. And that's the whole passage. The whole passage is emphasising that Jesus was born of a virgin. And finally, I want to preach to you that Jesus was and is Emmanuel, God with us, in verse 23. This is a sermon all about the majesty and magnificence of Jesus Christ. The whole Christmas story, according to Matthew, it is declaring to us who this baby was who was to be born at Christmas time. It's all about Jesus. It's not really about Joseph. It's all about Jesus Christ. 
So firstly, let's read again what the angel says in verse 21 to Joseph, in Joseph's dream. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus is transliterated um, from the Hebrew name uh, Jeshua, uh, yeah, sorry, Yeshua, or Joshua, and Yeshua means Yahweh saves. That's what the name Jesus means. Yahweh saves. And I, and I, love, I love that phrase because it shows that God, God who is Yahweh, that's God's name, God is active in saving people. That's what that name Jesus means. God saves. Yahweh saves. And so Jesus was surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, the perfect name for Jesus because Jesus was the one through whom God would save his people. That was, a, that was the ideal name for Jesus, because God was saving his people through Jesus Christ, and therefore it was entirely appropriate that he be called Jesus, or Yeshua, or Joshua. And so we believe that Jesus is the one through whom God saves his people. Christians, do not grow weary of believing and declaring and celebrating that Jesus is our saviour. It's the kind of thing that you can be, grow too familiar with as a Christian. And you can think, oh, we've, we know that Jesus saves us from our sins, Duncan. This is, so, this is just basic stuff. This is the boring stuff of Christianity. This is not boring. This is magnificent, that Jesus Christ is our saviour. And so Christians, as I preach this, I don't want you to, to kind of draw back and go, I already know this. I want you to press in and say, yes, teach it to my heart once more, that Jesus Christ is my saviour. May I be thrilled with that amazing truth that Jesus is the one who saves people from their sins. And if you're not a Christian, listen in, because there is salvation on offer this morning. Jesus can be your saviour. He can save you from your sins. That's what the angel says, doesn't, doesn't the angel? The angel says, call him, call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Romans 3, verse 23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us in this room have broken God's commandments. Every single one of us have, have had moments in our lives where we have not been good, but have committed evil. Psalm 14, verses 2 to 3 says this, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, to see if there are any who seek God. What does he see? All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. I was struck this week um, reading through the book of James, and I read James 4, verse 17, that says this. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do, fails to do it, for him it is sin. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And I know that that verse applies to me. I know there are times in my life when I knew what was the right thing to do, and I did not do it. And, and I, to be honest, I think that every human being is in that same category. There have been times in your life where you have known something was right for you to go and do it, and you did not do it. And so the Bible says to you, you have sinned. 
All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And then the Bible also says something hugely concerning. Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The payment, what are you going to get paid for the, things that, for the sins that you've committed? For all those times when you knew what was the right thing to do and you did not do it, what will be the wages you will receive? What will be the payment you receive? The answer, according to Romans 6, verse 23, is death. The right an eternal decree of God is that all who have sinned, which is all of us, will receive punishment for their sin and death. Without a saviour, every single one of us, we will all suffer the punishment of death. But there is amazing news in Matthew chapter 1, in the birth of Jesus Christ. There's amazing news because it is the will of God to save us into eternal life. And so Jesus, the one whose very name means God saves, was born to save us from our sins. That's what the angel declared to Joseph in the dream. That's what angel Gabriel declared to Mary when Gabriel met with Mary and told her that she would would have a son in Luke's gospel. Jesus is born and he has come to save us from our sin. Sin that would have us die. The wages of sin is death. So everyone who had sinned would receive death. But Jesus was born... And he hasn't even been born yet in the story of Matthew, but even before he's born, the angel is saying to Joseph, this one, this baby will be born and he'll be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you are one of Jesus' people. You are part of his people and he was born to save you from your sins. That's why Jesus dies on the cross. On the cross, Jesus receives the wages for our sins. He dies in our place that we might go free. Our wages have been paid, but we did not receive those wages. Rather, Jesus received those wages on the cross as a substitute in our place. And we, instead of receiving death, the wages for the sins that we have committed, we receive a different wage. We receive that which we did not work for. We receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life in God. All who have faith in Jesus Christ have their sins forgiven, they're saved from their sins, and all who have been saved from their sins will enter into eternal life, will live forever with God, will enjoy life to the full now here in the presence of Jesus Christ, but will one day enter into the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth will be established and Jesus Christ will reign and we will experience paradise on earth. There will be no more elections for we already have the perfect government in place. Jesus Christ, the King of glory, the King of goodness, the King of righteousness and we will live forever in paradise together. I cannot wait for that day. There is a mission here to be lived out on earth now but I cannot wait for that day in which we enter into the perfect kingdom of Jesus Christ, for Jesus was born to save his people from their sins. You know, if you're not a believer, I call you to believe in Jesus Christ this morning. Believe in him, become one of Jesus' people and receive the greatest gift that is on offer anywhere in the world. And if you're a Christian, do not grow 
bored of this amazing gospel message that Jesus died to save you from your sins. Rejoice in it. Celebrate in it. I mean, you should be jumping up and down right now in my sermon. You don't have to do that. But you should be going, come on, Jesus! You died to save us from our sins. It's an amazing news. Never grow bored of that. Celebrate that over and over again. Because here in Matthew chapter 1, we learn that the baby to be born is called Jesus, for he will save us from our sins. He has saved us from our sins. Now secondly, let's look at verse 22. In verse 22, it says this, All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So the virgin birth, which I'm going to talk about in a, in a moment, was a fulfilment of an Old Testament prophecy given in the book of Isaiah, given in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Jesus' birth was the fulfilment of prophecy. And so I want to preach to you about Jesus Christ being the fulfilment of the Old Testament. And this is a major theme in the Christmas story, and actually throughout the whole book of Matthew, Jesus, Matthew is like he loves this fact that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So, so next week we're going to read um, a prophecy from Micah, and we're going to see that Jesus fulfills a prophecy in Micah. This week we're reading that Jesus um, fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah. But let me just read you this: on 15 occasions, Matthew speaks of Jesus Christ being the one who fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. Here are 15. Verses, uh, in fact, 14 verses, because I've already read you the one in chapter 1, but here are 14 verses from the book of Matthew that speak explicitly about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. Matthew 2, verse 15 says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew 2, verse 17. This was fulfilled, this, sorry, this fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Matthew 2, verse 23. That what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Matthew 4, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus speaking here. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 8, verse 17, Matthew writes this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Matthew 12, verse 17, Matthew writes exactly the same thing. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Matthew 13, verse 14, indeed in, that, in this case the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Matthew 13, verse 35, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Matthew 21, verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Matthew 26, verse 54, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? Matthew 26, verse 56, all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And Matthew 27, verse 9, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Throughout the book of Matthew, over and over again, Matthew is hammering home to his readers that Jesus Christ fulfills what has been prophesied about in the Old Testament. Fifteen times he says, just so you know, what I've just told you about is fulfillment of something that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. Jesus was and is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. His life wasn't just an isolated moment in history that kind of came out of nowhere. That's not what Jesus' life was. It was the culmination of thousands of years of Israelite history and thousands of years of writings and prophecies and stories all pointing to the Saviour and the Messiah who was to come. I think we should think of history as this great tapestry 
And God is the one who is weaving and sewing this amazing tapestry of history. And if you go right to the beginning of the tapestry, there's a golden thread weaved in. There's the story of Adam and Eve, and there's the story of Abraham and Jacob, and, all, and, and throughout Genesis and Exodus, and, and all through the Old Testament, there's this golden thread that starts off small at the beginning. But as you go through the Old Testament, you read more and more about this Messiah, this Saviour who was coming. And so this golden thread gets wider and bigger until eventually when Jesus Christ is born in the Gospels, there's this amazing, like, brilliant golden tapestry of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah has been born. But you can go right back to the beginning, you can see the golden thread that was right there at the beginning through thousands and thousands of years until Jesus is born and Matthew just wants to shout. I can imagine Matthew standing up and preaching from his book and saying, I wrote this so that you would know that Jesus Christ is the fulfilment of the Old Testament. And if you haven't seen that in my book, then you need to go back and read it, because I wrote it down 15 times in the book of Matthew, that Jesus Christ was the fulfilment of the Old Testament. But what difference does that make to our lives? That Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. Well, I want to suggest two ways in which that should change our lives here and now. Firstly, it should fill our hearts with worship towards God. His infinite wisdom revealed Jesus Christ all the way through the Old Testament until he was eventually born. And, and you know, that picture of Jesus being the weaver of the great tapestry, I just think that should fill our hearts with worship. God is sovereign over all of history. And he was building to Jesus Christ. He, from eternity, he had the salvation plan to save human beings through Jesus Christ. And for thousands of years, he was, he was orchestrating history to reveal Jesus Christ as the Messiah when he was born. I love that about God. He's the orchestrator of history. He's the great tapestry weaver. He truly is infinitely wise, and he has gifted us the scriptures to testify to and reveal Jesus as the Christ. That should fill our hearts with worship this morning, that God has been so glorious and wise in orchestrating history to reveal Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. That's the first difference I think it should make. I'm rubbing, aren't I? <laughs> Secondly, I think that truth that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament should solidify our faith. One of the primary reasons I'm a Christian from an academic kind of point of view, I, I would say I'm a Christian from uh, a kind of personal, emotional point of view in the sense that I know God, I've experienced his presence in my life and I pray to him and I've heard from him and, and it's an experiential truth. And so I'm a Christian from that point of view in that I know God, I have an experience of being with him. But I would say I'm also a Christian from kind of an academic perspective. And, and I, I went to university and I studied history and I went to Bible college and I learned Hebrew and Greek. And all those things have helped solidify that, that Jesus' Jesus's life and death and resurrection from the dead aren't, aren't fairy tales. They're not make-believe. They're the truth. They're the true history. And so I, it's important to me that I can justify my faith from an academic point of view. And one of the ways I do that is by looking at the amazing ways in which the Old Testament prophesies the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when, when you read the New Testament, you read the life of Jesus, you see over and over again how he fulfills the Old Testament 
and you look back and read those Old Testament scriptures, and sometimes it's a really obvious prophecy. So, so in Micah 2, again, we're going to read it next week, it says a king, a ruler, a shepherd shall be born in Jerusalem. And every Jew who ever read that realised that that was a messianic prom... Uh, sorry, not Jerusalem, Bethlehem. And so every, every um, Jew who ever read that verse knew that the ruler, the Messiah, the king, the shepherd would be born in Bethlehem. It's, a, it's an obvious messianic prophecy. But then there are kind of more subtle prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. So... If you go back and read Isaiah 7, and it's my intention to preach um, Isaiah 7 in 2020, you'll know that in 2019 we did a sermon series on Isaiah and we got to chapter 6. We're going to pick that back up again in 2020 and preach from Isaiah chapter 7, so I'll preach on this. But when you read Isaiah chapter 7, it's not immediately obvious that this, this virgin birth prophecy is a messianic prophecy. It's just part of the story in, in which Isaiah is, is prophesying. It doesn't immediately look like a prophecy about Jesus. But then when Jesus comes, and he is born of a virgin, you look back at Isaiah and you go, well, of course that was a messianic prophecy. We just didn't see it until we saw Jesus and realised that he was a fulfilment. And so one of the academic reasons why I'm a Christian is because when I read the Old Testament, I am blown away by the, the, the hundreds of different ways in which the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And I just find that so satisfying and so worshipful, in a sense, that I, I say, this book cannot be written by human hands. It cannot be written by human hands. It, the Old Testament so beautifully portrays Jesus Christ, it must have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so if you believe that Jesus was the fulfilment of the Old Testament... I would encourage you to let that solidify your faith, that for thousands of years, God was pointing to Jesus Christ. That's a reason to have greater faith than you've had before. So worship God for his infinite wisdom and have your faith solidified by the Old Testament scriptures pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, this particular prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, quoted in Matthew chapter 1, says this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And so we come to my third point this morning, and the central point of Matthew chapter 1. Jesus was born of a virgin. Look at verse 18. Matthew, uh, sorry, Mary is found to be with child um, before Mary and Joseph get married. So they've been, they've been engaged, they're betrothed to one another, but they haven't yet been married, and so they haven't slept together yet, and Mary gets pregnant. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Joseph? Joseph knows it's not his, doesn't he? He must have been devastated and angry. This woman whom he loved, whom he wanted to marry, whom he was looking forward to marry, has slept with someone else and ended up getting pregnant. That's what, that's what Joseph's thinking. In, in the, at the beginning of this story, in verse 18. And what's more, instead of just confessing her sin, instead of Mary saying, I'm really sorry, Joseph, like this happened, what's more, Mary is saying, I didn't sleep with anyone, I promise. It was the Holy Spirit conceived in me, um, and this angel Gabriel appeared to me. Can you imagine what Joseph, I, I think if it was me for my sins, I would have I flown off the hand, I would have lost it. I'd have been like, what are you talking about, woman? You've committed a terrible sin and now you're lying about it and pretending that the Holy Spirit has conceived a child in you. This is nonsense. I think I probably would have lost it. And I've got a lot of admiration for Joseph in this passage. 
like he is, he is a, he's described as a just man. Instead of going nuts, he thinks, I'm going to call this off quietly. My betrothed, the one I'm betrothed to has gone absolutely crazy, um, but I'm just going to call, I'm just going to like separate this quietly and on the side. He, he still loves her. He doesn't want to shame her. He doesn't want to kind of publicly show that Mary is a sinner. And so he says he's going to do this quietly. And as he's pondering, as he's grappling with what's going on in his life, he falls asleep. Um, you can imagine him, I don't know, if you're anything like me, sometimes as I'm going to sleep, I'm thinking about all the things that have happened in the day, and I'm trying to protest them and work them out. And Joseph's had a pretty bad day, um, because he's found out his, his betrothed one is pregnant, and she thinks that it's by the Holy Spirit. And so he's kind of, he must have been kind of awake for a while, processing these things. And eventually, he falls asleep, and an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Just as a quick aside, uh, we believe God speaks to us by dreams sometimes. He speaks to us by words and pictures and sometimes dreams. And um, let me just share one dream that I had. Um, I, I believe God spoke me, to me twice in my life by dreams. Um, and one of them was significant for this church plant. So I, I was in Watford, um, not living in Fairham, and I was trying to work out what God had for me in the future. And I had this dream where... Um, I was in my school, which is called Watford Grammar School for Boys. It is kind of the central... Perfect, yeah, Chris went there as well, which is hilarious. Um, we kind of independently have made our way down to the south coast. Um, anyway, I went, so I, I, in this dream, I was at school, which for me is representative of Watford, and everyone dressed in their school uniforms was trying to chase me out of the school. Um, so it was kind of a bizarre dream. I was like, what is going on? So these people were chasing me out of the school, and I'm having, I'm having to get out of there fast because I don't know what they're going to do to me. Like, I've, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure what's going on, really. But I just knew I had to get away from the school. I had to get away because people were chasing me out. And in this dream, I had a conversation with my best friend, Alex, um, who was my best man at my wedding. He went to the school with me. I grew up with him. Um, really good friend. And, and I said to Alex, I've got to go. Like, these guys are coming for me. I need to leave. I need to go. And, and I remember specifically in the dream, Alex said, I'm going to stay. I'm not coming with you. I'm going to stay. And um, at first, I woke up and thought, well, that's a weird dream. Why do I remember that? That means absolutely nothing to me. I'm, go I'm not quite as crazy as Mary is, but I'm, I'm, going, quite quick. I'm going quite crazy. Um, and then a few months later, over time, um, Fairham started to develop as an option. And I started speaking to Tim Blaber, who was leading the church in Portsmouth, and he, and he started talking to me about coming to Fairham and planting a church. And as I prayed about that, I had other prophecies as well. I started to realize that this really was what God was calling me to, is to plant a church in Fairham and see the gospel proclaimed in Fairham. And the very first thing I did was say to Alex, my best mate, will you come with me? Like, um, he's a great man of God, and I would love to have him here. And I sat down and I, I said to him, will you come with me? Like, we, let's go and plant this church together, it would be fantastic. And, and Alex said, let me pray about it. And he came back a week later and he, he said, I think God wants me to stay. I think God's telling me to stay. And that was quite a hard moment, because he's my, he's my best mate and I really care about him. And I knew he, how phenomenal he'd be here, but he was right. It was important, actually, that as I left the church and they lost someone in Watford who was important, that Alex stayed. And Alex it wasn't preaching at the time I left, but now is being raised up into preaching, and he will go into, he'll probably go into eldership in that church in Watford in the future. He's being raised up almost in my place, in a sense. And, and so it was important that he stay in Watford while I go to Fairham. And then, as I had that conversation, I realised that I'd already dreamt this conversation in a slightly more bizarre way. And it was just God speaking to me it, through my dreams and, and revealing 
something to me. Um, my mum once had a dream where she was looking everywhere for the nard. She didn't know what nard was. She was looking everywhere for the nard, um, and she couldn't find it. And she woke up and she went, "What's nard?" What? Like she thought she was going a bit crazy. It turns out nard is the perfume, is the perfume that the lady pours on Jesus's feet in worship. And so my mum felt God was saying to her that she needs to reach out and be more worshipful in the way she worships God. She needs to like really lay, give up expensive perfume, give up expensive things to worship God. And so we really believe in this church that God can speak to us by dreams. That was an aside that I spent far too long on. Um, but just, if, if you do wake up and remember a dream, just pray about it briefly. Sometimes we have dreams that are meaningless and are not from God, but sometimes God does speak to us by by dreams. So maybe spend a bit of time and just say, God, were you saying something to me in that dream? Anyway, so Joseph has this dream, and in the dream, the angel appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph realised that Mary was telling the truth, that this rich... This baby really was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that Mary had not sinned, and that he should still marry her, and that he was going to raise Jesus Christ, who would save people from their sins. And so according to this angel, Jesus truly was born of a virgin. And so let me say this morning, we believe as a church in the virgin birth. We believe that Mary was a virgin, and she gave birth to a child, Jesus Christ. And there are three reasons we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin um, this morning. The first is this. God is able to do the impossible. You know, I think the virgin birth seems to be a particular sticking point for some non-Christians. How can you believe in Christianity? I couldn't possibly believe that there was a virgin birth, and therefore I couldn't possibly believe there's a God, and therefore I couldn't possibly believe in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I've had a few conversations where people go... I mean, you believe in the virgin birth? That's absolutely mental. I couldn't possibly believe in that, and therefore I cannot be a Christian. I think some Christians think like that. Uh, Some non-Christians think like that, sorry. You know what? That is circular reasoning. Circular reasoning. If you have a presupposition that there is no God, then you believe that virgin birth is impossible, and therefore you go well, if there's no virgin birth, then the Bible isn't true, and therefore Christianity isn't true, and therefore there is no God. You started with a presupposition that God doesn't exist, and you've ended with a conclusion that God doesn't exist. You've gone round in a circle. However, if there is a God who created the laws of nature, it is not unreasonable to believe that he can break those laws and therefore do the miraculous. You know, Christians have their own circle. Non-Christians have their circle. There is no God. Virgin birth can't happen. Therefore, there is no God. Christians have their own circle. There is a God. He created the earth and all the laws of nature. Therefore, he, in his sovereignty and power, can choose to break those laws of nature. Therefore, there can be a virgin birth. Therefore, there was a virgin birth. Therefore, the Bible is true and there is a God. So we have our own circle. And and all I'm trying to say is that if you're a non-Christian, you're saying, I'm not a Christian because of the virgin birth, that is actually a very poor argument because you're wrapped up in your own presupposition and your own own circle that you're wrapped in. And, And actually, if you open your mind for a moment to think there might be a God, suddenly the virgin birth does not become an argument for Christianity not being true. 
If there is a God who created the laws of nature, then it's perfectly reasonable to believe that a virgin birth can happen. And that's the God we see described in the Bible, a God who is able to do amazing miracles, who can do the impossible. He parted the Red Sea, he heals the sick, he raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and therefore it's perfectly possible that this same God could conceive a son by the Holy Spirit so that a virgin would give birth. Yes, it's an amazing miracle, but it's not a reason not to believe in God. So the first reason we believe in the virgin birth is because we know God is able to do the impossible. The second reason we believe it is because the Bible says so. It's not a very satisfying argument, I, I understand that, but that is, we believe in the virgin birth because the Bible says that there was a virgin birth. And we believe this is the word of God, and we believe God is a God of truth. And so the words contained in this book are true because that's the character of God. It would be ridiculous for a God of truth to write a book full of lies. And so we, we believe that this word is truth. And so if the Bible says that there was a virgin birth, we believe there was a virgin birth. And you've got to start asking questions that if, we, if people start denying the virgin birth, and there are some Christians out there, who, some preachers out there who would deny the virgin birth, what else are they denying in this book? Where do you stop ripping pages out of things that we think, well, that's a bit unreasonable in our human thinking. We think, oh, that's a bit unreasonable. I'll rip that page out. It's a very, very slippery slope. I, I would say don't listen to a preacher. Yeah, run away from preachers who don't believe in the virgin birth. They are dangerous because they're, taking, they're picking and choosing what they want to believe from this book, whereas we believe this is the word of God and we trust it and we believe it. The third reason we believe in the virgin birth is a theological reason. Romans 5 verse 12 says this, Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There is an idea in the Bible that because Adam sinned at the beginning of creation, all who have been born, all who are born from the seed of sinful man, are also born into sin. Did you catch that bit of the psalm that Chris read at the start from Psalm 51? David's speaking and he says, I was born into sin. And this is this is idea in, in, in the Bible that all who are descended from Adam are born into sin because Adam sinned and he's the, he's the head over all of humanity. And so through his seed passed down to every single person who's ever been born, everyone is born into sin. I think those who have children would, would agree that they can see from a very early age that their children are sinful and like to disobey and do things wrong. And, and, and so we don't actually believe children are innocent in this church, in a sense. We believe that they are sinners from a very early, young age. And it's that, this idea that sin has come down through the ages from Adam to every single person ever born, except one. Except one. There was a man who was not conceived by the seed of man, but who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so um, Mary was sinful. Mary was a sinful human being. But the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is born without sin. 
Uh, and so we, we say as Christians that Jesus was sinless, he was blameless. And by that we mean in his life he never did anything wrong, but we also believe that from his very conception, because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was purified and blameless from his very birth. And Jesus' blamelessness is an extremely important part of Christianity because when Jesus dies for the sins of the world, it's important that he is dying for other people's sin rather than his own sin. And so we believe Jesus was innocent and blameless and sinless, and he was sinless from very conception, and therefore he was the perfect one, the perfect sacrifice upon the cross for our sins. So that's why we believe in the virgin birth, because God can do the impossible, because it says so in the Bible, and because it's important theologically that Jesus was born without sin. Finally then, we believe the virgin birth is a sign. According to Isaiah 7 verse 14, the virgin birth is a sign of Emmanuel, God with us. Because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, we can truly say he was God come to earth. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us. Jesus is God born a baby. And that means before Jesus is even born in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew has taught us so much about who Jesus is. He's told us that he's the son of David, the everlasting king. He's told us that he's the son of Abraham, the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. And he's told us that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the magic of the Christmas story. It's not the angels or the shepherds or the magi or the stars, really. Those, those, bits are ama- those bits are amazing parts of the story. But the true magic, and I mean magic just in its, in its brilliance rather than its kind of um, trickery, I guess. The true magic, the true brilliance of the Christmas story is the magnificence and majesty of who Jesus is. This baby to be born will bless all the nations. This baby to be born will be king forever. This baby born is God come to earth to dwell with man. Can you imagine being there 2,000 years ago and seeing God in human flesh walking the earth? Mary and Joseph, our son is God. The disciples, come and meet God. We've met Jesus Christ. We've walked with him. God is amongst us. God is with us. One final encouragement for you this morning. Jesus is still God with us today by the Holy Spirit. Jesus lived on the earth. He died his death on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And from his throne in heaven, God the Father and God the Son breathed out the Holy Spirit into the world. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And so if you're a believer here this morning, if you have the Holy Spirit, that is the Spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling within you. And so Jesus is still Emmanuel. The Holy Spirit is Emmanuel, in a sense. God with us today. When we, when we leave this place, you know, sometimes we tempted to think that God has deserted us or it doesn't feel like God is very close. Do not believe that. That is a lie. You have the Holy Spirit, and that means God goes with you wherever you go. God is always Emmanuel. Jesus is always Emmanuel with you wherever you go. Have confidence. Be bold. And most importantly, press into the presence of God. Press into the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's make Christmas a time of, of 
entering into the presence of God, knowing that God, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the one who saves us from our sins. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is the one conceived of the Holy Spirit. He's the one born of a virgin. He is truly God with us. And so we worship and adore Jesus Christ. Christmas is all about worshipping and adoring Jesus Christ for who he is. Let's leave here this morning filled with thoughts of how wonderful Jesus is, how much we love him, how much we want to worship him, how we want to put our faith in him and keep putting our faith in him over and over again. For he is worthy of our faith, he's worthy of our adoration, he's worthy of our worship. He's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham, he is Emmanuel, God with us. Let us worship and adore him together this morning. Let's stand and pray and we'll finish with one final song. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the weaver of the great tapestry, the one who orchestrated all of history, thousands of years of history, to point to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. We thank you for that, and we ask that we would worship you for your great wisdom and manifold expertise in knitting history together. And we pray that that would solidify our faith. Lord God, may we be confident in the truth and the good news that we believe in Jesus Christ. And Lord God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that even as he's born a baby at Christmas time, he is the son of Abraham through whom all nations will be blessed. He is the son of David who would reign forever and ever and he is God with us. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your humility and your love for us. That meant you were born a human being to save us from our sins. We were lost in our sins. We were destined to die, but you in love for us came down to save us. And we are so, so grateful for that, Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts be lifted to praise and worship you for that. May our hearts never grow bored of that amazing truth, that you are the one who saves sinners from their sins. And Lord, we say we are sinners, we were sinners, we have sinned, we have not done the things that we ought to do. And we pray, forgive us, and we thank you for the death of Christ that secures our forgiveness. And we say, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might leave this place full of worship, full of praise, living life in accordance with your commandments, giving you the praise and adoration that you deserve. Thank you, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the story of Christmas. Thank you for the virgin birth. Thank you that you are the blameless sacrifice, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are the sinless one whom we worship. We give you glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.